this is episode 142 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Beta Cell Proliferation and Diabetes with Dr. Adrian Teo. Hey everyone, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. And if you love the podcast as much as we do, don't forget to rate us on iTunes or leave a review even better. Your input helps us improve the podcast and create a better listening experience for you. So get on it. It's for your own good. Today, we have Dr. Adrian Ki Kyung Tio from the Institute of Molecular and Cell Biology at the Agency for Science, Technology, and Research in Singapore. He's on the podcast to talk about his research on the use of HPSCs for in vitro disease modeling of diabetes. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up very shortly. But first, this week, we'd like to remind our listeners about pancreatic cell news. One of stem cells' free weekly science newsletters, pancreatic cell news summarizes all the latest research, news, jobs, and events in pancreatic cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Tuesday. Same save time and keep current in pancreatic cell news. Subscribe for free at pancreaticcellnews.com. Now we're on to the roundup, and we're staying in the pancreas in honor of our guest, but also because, you know, today we're taking a tour of all the organs in the body in our roundup, and we're starting from the bottom like Drake. This is a story from Douglas Melton's lab. He's a big fan of Drake, I know. He's at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, and, you know, he studies diabetes and his efforts to generate pancreatic beta cells and pancreatic islets. You know why? Because he's got two kids who got diabetes. They're all grown now, and everything's okay. But it's a great story about a guy who's personally motivated to solve a major problem, a growing problem in the world. So, you know, there's a lot of differentiation protocols that have been developed to convert pluripotent stem cells into pancreatic beta cells. But a challenge in generating any cell type in vitro is the heterogeneity of the cells that are generated by direct differentiation of pluripotent cells, at least. And the body, perfect. It's a miracle. You get an in vitro, it's a big mess. A lot of heterogeneity. So to improve, improve uh, efficiency, it's really important to identify all the cell types that are present in that differentiated colony there. And previous studies using beta cell differentiation protocols, they made a lot of really important observations, right? And proofs of principle. One, that the, the co-expression of insulin, other key beta cell markers, obviously, you know, to be beta cells, they got to express the right stuff. And they also are responsive. They, they have glucose-stimulated insulin secretion, right? That's the primary proof that these beta cells are produced in vitro. But... There's, there's no study out there that's really comprehensively determined the identities and states of all the cell types produced both before as well as alongside, you know, leading up to as well as in the culture with the beta cells. Doug Melton wanted to go after that. And, and this is a complicated thing here because this, of all the protocols out there for directed differentiation, it's not totally unique, but it's one of the more uh, complicated ones. There's uh, you grow the, the stem cells in 3D clusters and you differentiate them in these six discrete stages to generate these stem cell-derived beta cell islets. 
And the first three stages, they're pretty efficient, and you get a pretty homogeneous, like over 90% population, um, 90% pure population of these PDX1 positive progenitors. But after that, it all kind of unravels, and who knows what the numbers are there. So Doug Mountain's group, they applied single-cell seq. What do you know? Single-cell sequencing and subsequent computational bioinformatics analysis to define the emergent cell types at each stage of differentiation and to like really rigorously uh, look into their global gene expression profile in an unbiased way. Uh, and they transcriptionally profiled more than 100,000 cells. Oh my God. This is derivatives of human pl pluripotent stem cell differentiation uh, during this differentiation process. And what they resolved is that there's multiple populations. There's the you know beta cell. There's a alpha-like polyhormonal cell. Also, non-endocrine cells that resemble uh, pancreatic exocrine cells. Um, and here, a novel, unreported population that resembles enterochromaffin cells. I don't know what those are. Somebody, please send me an email. What the heck is an enterochromaffin cell? The uh, changes in gene expression uh, associated with the in vivo beta cell maturation, they were also recapitulating these cell types. And this is a big question, because the whole idea, we've talked about it a lot in the show, is that these cells, it's, it's a question as to whether or not they uh, mature or, or they you know, have this residual kind of neonatal signature. We're going to talk with that, about that with uh, our guest a bit later, I hope. Um, but in this case, using a single cell seq, they showed that that maturation is recapitulated in vitro. So that's a really important uh, finding there. And they also implemented this scalable reaggregation technique that uh, they could use to deplete all the non-endocrine cells. And furthermore, they used CD49A, also known as integrin alpha-1, as a surface marker of the beta cell population, which allowed them to do sorting to a purity of up to 80%. Okay, so this is a lot there. They do single-cell seq, they unpack a bunch of findings, and ultimately the this, this study it pr provides a perspective um, you know, molecular perspective on, on the nature of human stem cell differentiation toward the beta cells. Uh, and it's like an atlas that's probably going to guide uh, a lot of our future endeavors that are trying to generate these actual islets, you know, like generate something that's transplantable that can be used uh, therapeutically. So kudos to you, Doug, and your group. First author, Adrian Berez, deserves a little shout out. Nice work. Let's move up a little bit. Move up to the liver. The liver's a big deal. You know, it's indispensable. It has many metabolic functions, most notably metabolizing like poison that we put into our bodies. Uh, but also it's like really regenerative by necessity because of all that poison we put in. It has all these regenerative capabilities. And there's two major epithelial cell types within the liver the hepatocytes and biliary epithelial cells that play a vital role in both the metabolic function as well as the regenerative capacity of the liver. Um, and indeed, the recent lineage tracing studies have shown that maybe these biliary epithelial cells are a little more prominent, shown that they act as uh, facultative liver stem cells 
to repopulate the liver. Um, but despite like all this evidence that these biliary epithelial cells are maybe the major players there, uh, and all the emerging significance of these cells as a major progenitor in the liver, there's still debate as to whether these biliary epithelial cells actually have regenerative ca capacity. I don't know who it is. Some like climate deniers probably talking about these biliary epithelial cells like they ain't nothing. Well, they're, they're probably wrong, but you know, it, it stands to reason because it's tough to fractionate the cell populations in the liver. And to date, the subset evaluations, it's like the way you isolate different populations are basic. It's like difference in cell size, or you can do some surface markers, but they're not consistently expressed in the biliary epithelial cells or hepatocytes. So uh, a detailed, unbiased approach for understanding the heterogeneity of the liver epithelium, both in like steady state as well as on following injury, you know, because that's what we, we care about is how this liver can constantly regenerate. Understanding that it's yet to be realized, all right? So uh, Fernando Camargo, also at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, probably right upstairs from our boy Doug Mountain, he probably got the memo about single cell seek and said, hey, let me get some of that. He did some single cell seek as well. This effort, not, you know, just right above the pancreas, but not in the pancreas, this effort in the liver, it's directed at uh, dissecting the transcriptional heterogeneity in the adult liver, both in steady state as well as following injury in hepatocytes and biliary epithelial cells, so distinguishing these two. All right, and what they found was that instead of evidence for a transcriptionally defined progenitor-like biliary epithelial cell, they found that there's a significant heterogeneity of these cells um, that is reflective of fluctuating activity of YAP. Okay, so this is the biliary epithelial cells in the liver are dependent on this YAP-driven uh, signaling. Okay, and then using that as a springboard, they did a bunch of additional lineage tracing in uh, mice in both. This is all in mouse, by the way. Uh, more lineage tracing in mouse in both the, to distinguish the hepatocyte and biliary epithelial cells. And then they showed you could also, they did a biliary and hepatocyte-specific knockout of YAP um, to further reveal that YAP signaling is induced by physiological bile acids. Um, it is also required for biliary epithelial cell survival in response to exposure to that uh, bile acid. So that's kind of like a response to injury. So you need YAP for that. And you also need YAP um, for hepatocyte reprogramming and indeed uh, suggests that YAP ask, acts as a an essential transcriptional rheostat that regulates the dynamic and regenerative response to environmental stimuli, generally in the liver, specifically regeneration and insult, but perhaps also generally, yeah, maybe playing this role. All right, so that's that with uh, the endoderm-derived organs. Let's go into the meso, shall we? We're going to the heart right now. This is a, a really interesting story um, because, you know, 
it's a major unmet need, right? We've done pretty well, actually, in the acute phase. So you can do the coronary catheterization, uh, and when they come in, they're dead, right? You catheterize, and that restores patency to whatever vessel has collapsed there. And you can get a save, right? You restart the heart, you restore patency, you can get a little minor revascularization and minor, minor regeneration. It improves the outcome. I mean, in the acute phase, like you walk out of the hospital slowly. But um, that's the thing, slowly. It results in a growing number of patients who are walking around with permanent structural damage to the heart. Okay, and why? It's because the adult heart just doesn't regenerate. In adults, uh, neonates a little bit, but in adults, cardiomyocyte proliferation is only, it's like a steady state turnover is like less than 1%, somewhere around there. And it's only marginally increased after a heart attack, after infarction. Um, and in fact, what you get instead of the, the myocardium regenerating, you get a bunch of scar, right? You get uh, negative regeneration. Uh, the proliferation of the scar ends up actually impeding uh, the function of the heart, and then you get a lot of people with heart failure. They ultimately succumb to heart failure, right? So major unmet need probably kills half the people that die, you know, prematurely. Cardiovascular disease, I would bet. It's aggressive, but a lot, all right? A lot. So how are we going to get at this? Well, there's previous work that's shown that cardiomyocyte proliferation is governed in part at least by uh, microRNAs. You know, microRNAs are these small RNAs that can control, regulate a whole suite of transcripts by binding cognate sequences in those transcripts and wiping them out. So it's like a blanket regulatory apparatus. And there's a few in human microRNAs, uh, including this one that uh, our investigators, like this is by Mauro Giaccia, who is... um, in Italy, of course, you probably gathered from the name that I butchered. My apologies. Um, but uh, there's this this microRNA that they use as well. It's 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 enriched in the heart. This microRNA 199A. It's shown that it's heart specific and it can stimulate rodent cardiomyocyte entry into the cell cycle and cardiac regeneration. So it takes these slow cardiomyocytes that don't usually turn over and gets them back in the cell cycle, and this can lead to regeneration after a heart attack. Wow. But this is a rodent model, right? And, you know, we're not trying to save mice. We're trying to get rid of them mice. So let's move up to a large animal model, and that's what uh, Mauro did. Dr. Giaccia in Italy. They uh, were moving into a large animal model, in this case, the pig. All right, this is a nature letter. The pig, it's a relevant large animal model because the heart's like the same size as our hearts. In fact, they talk about using pig hearts for transplant. Isn't that crazy? Probably not if you're, uh, you know, orthodox. You don't want to get one of them pig hearts. But hey, I'll do what I got to do to survive. You know what I'm saying? All right. Well, in uh, Italy, I don't think they're worried about it. They'll take, they love the swine over there. They'll eat it. They'll transplant it. In this case, they were testing the heart of a pig with this microRNA following heart attack. They took adenovirus, okay, serotype AAV6, which is shown to be the most effective in pig cardiomyocytes, I suppose. 
And they use it to overexpress this, um, or to deliver this expression construct with microRNA 199A driven by this ubiquitous constitutive CMB promoter, okay? And so they induced MI in 25 pigs by doing a 90-minute occlusion of the left anterior descending coronary artery, and then they released that occlusion to reperfuse, all right? This model's heart attack in humans, where you lose flow and then you restore it. Then they divided the pigs into two groups uh, where they delivered uh, either empty vector, the empty adeno, or the adeno that was expressing this microRNA-199A. And here's, here's where you got to pay attention. They delivered 20 trillion uh, adenoviral particles, okay? I mean, it sounds crazy, but they're really, really small. So I don't want to, like, make it sound like they overdid it, but that's the number, okay? 20 trillion. Uh, and they inject it into the left ventricle wall, and that's where they usually get the, you know, ischemia because you ligated the left anterior descending coronary artery. There you go. So this is the ischemic site. They injected it post-MI in perfusion, reperfusion, with 20 trillion or of, of control or the microRNA-199, showed that these microRNAs were expressed, showed even that some of the targets of the microRNA were knocked down. And here we go. One month after they induced this myocardial infarction and delivered the microRNA, the treated animals showed remarkable improvements in both global and regional contractility, also increased muscle mass, and reduced scar size. Everything you want, all right? And the, 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 this correlated with uh, cardiomyocyte dedifferentiation and then proliferation. So like cardiomyocytes that were quiet, re-entering cell cycle, just like micro, microRNA-199A is capable of doing. All right, and here's the catch. Um, after some time, you have this, you know, persistent and uncontrolled expression of the, the microRNA that they delivered, and it resulted in sudden arrhythmic death of most of the treated pigs. Yeah, pretty sad. Um, and what they saw there is that in those where they had the sudden cardiac death, they saw the arrhythmic death, I should say. They saw that there was uh, myocardial, in the, in, it, the myocardium was infiltrated with uh, proliferating cells that were, like the phenotype was a poorly differentiated myoblastic cells. All right, so some of these cardiomyocytes that re-entered the cell cycle kind of went berserk, I guess, became this kind of nondescript myoblast that then blew up the heart. So, you know, the good news is it shows in a large animal model that's relevant to human that cardiac repair can, it's attainable. But um, you got to, you know, figure out the dose or the delivery method uh, and control it or else you're going to get some exploding hearts. Okay, so let's wait before we pop that into the human but uh, I think it's really encouraging to show such a, a massive effect and a functional recovery, you know, functional before they were dead, at least. But uh, I think it's a good show. Good show. I'll wait. You know, well, I don't, my heart's fine for now, but hopefully when my heart gets a bit ragged, they'll have got the dose right here. And then I'll take my trip to Italy and keep drinking the wine. 
All right, next, we're going to the top, right to the top with the brain. Ooh, we always love the brain on this show. And Avi, brain's pretty important. It's a huge thing, makes us human. Um, and the problem is brain development in utero, it's, it's you know, you, you know, your brain's still developing even ex utero. They call it the fourth trimester. But, like, especially in premature kids, um, and we're talking extremely premature here, so, like, before week 28, uh, you get a serious issue because that stage, it's almost like mid-gestation. Um, and that stage coincides with a lot of critical biological events in the development of the central nervous system. All right, so oftentimes when you get extremely pre premature kids, you'll find this encephalopathy, sorry, of prematurity, which is characterized by reduction in the volume of the cerebral cortex, and it correlates with a lot of neurodevelopmental outcomes like um, cognitive behavioral disorders. And it's thought that part of the pathogenesis of this encephalopathy is um, hypoxia, okay, perinatal hypoxia, okay, and that's the idea, but specifically the mechanisms by which the, the changes in oxygen tensions or hypoxia lead to these cortical defects in the extremely premature infants, it's not understood. And why is it not understood? Because there's, you know, very unique features that underlie the development of the human cortex, right? It's what makes us human, our big brains. Um, so animal models aren't sufficient, and of course it's not accessible to human brain experimentally. So the, the, the unique cortical developmental aspects in the human underscores the need for like a human model of brain development if we're going to try and understand the mechanisms of this process. So this is where we get into uh, the organoids, people. You've been waiting all show to hear an organoid story, and here it is. I'll lay it on you. This is from Sergio Pasca, who's at Stanford University. Um, and this is actually interesting, just as an aside. First author, Anka Pasca. Senior author, Sergio Pasca. They're both at Stanford. One of them is in the division of neonatology. And one of them is in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Maybe a partnership there. Maybe a good team. Very interesting. We've got to have them on the show. We just talked to Rita Perlingero about what it's like to work with your life partner. And uh, it was mixed. It was mixed, I think, her assessment. Anyway, this team, they wanted to get into the organoids like everybody else, right? So they used induced pluripotent stem cells to generate these human cortical spheroids. All right, and what's notable about these, after approximately 10 weeks in vitro, human cortical spheroids transcriptionally resemble the cerebral cortex at mid-gestation, which is close enough to extreme prematurity to serve as a model. So that's what they did. They used it to model this kind of hypoxia in the, the encephalopathy of prematurity. And they identified specific defects in intermediate progenitors, okay? And those are a cortical cell type that's associated with the expansion of the cerebral cortex. So it makes sense, right? There's defects in these intermediate progenitors, and they showed that these defects also were 
corroborated when you took human primary cortical tissue. It was the same kind of effect in our detriment or deficit in these intermediate progenitors. And then get this. They showed that a small molecule can prevent the reduction in intermediate progenitors following hypoxia. Whoa. But I will say they fell short of even claiming that like you could give this drug to premature infants and their brains would grow. But they do state, I think, very fairly, um, although, hey, maybe that's, maybe that's feasible. But I, I bet they would be very conservative about that claim. But they do say very confidently, and I agree, if they've here uh, generated and applied this model to, you know, to establish proof of principle that's valuable for, for, for studying like environmental insult uh, or genetic factors that underlie injury in the developing brain and at a stage that's really relevant, not just to like early, um, you know, neonates, you know, early fetus, but it's, it's even mid gestation and premature stage. So something that may give us insight into helping these kids along when they come a bit too early. All right. And then last, you know, we went from bottom to top today and now we're going to go with something that's everywhere. And not everywhere good, like the blood, everywhere bad. Cancer. We hate it. You know, we hate it. But we're doing pretty well at uh, getting at it, at solving it. You know, 80 to 90% survival nowadays with cancer. I feel like it was mirror image. I feel like it was 80, 90% mortality 50 years ago. So good job, good job. Continuing the good job, we have people from Get This... This is a little nod to our guest, Adrian Teo. We got his boys on the show from Singapore, Bing Lim, and Wai Leong Tam. Wai Leong Tam's also at the Biopolis, A-star, with Adrian. So they're probably, you know, high-fiving back there. But Wai Leong Tam and Bing Lim, what they were doing here is they were looking at cancer, right? Cancer cells and metabolism. Cancer cells depend on altered metabolic states for tumor proliferation. And stress adaptation. They use like a different kind of metabolism. Uh, and that's great, kind of, therapeutically, because that cancer-specific metabolism could be, uh, you know, a therapeutic target, uh, a target with potential. Um, but the, the majority of studies today, I mean, that's not a new idea. Hey, let's target the metabolism of the cancer. So it's not a new idea, but most of the studies have tried to parse the metabolic disparity between the bulk tumor and normal tissue, right? But we know, we talk about it, solid tumor is highly heterogeneous, okay? There's all kinds of cells in the tumor, and most notably, I think, the, the, the cell we hate, the, the real arch nemesis cell, are these tumor-initiating cells, right? These tumor-initiating cells are often resistant to the conventional mainline chemo, and so you get rid of all the other cells, and then these tumor-initiating cells, they stick around, and then they relapse into the super cancer that's all TICs and their near derivatives. Um, and also just baseline that these tumor-initiating cells, they, they appear to be highly invasive and metastatic. Uh, but of course, because, you know, because they're so different and have all these qualities, they also have different and distinct metabolic requirements, but the nature of those distinct metabolic requirements remains unclear. But 
at the Biopolis, they're elucidating those differences, okay? Um, and to understand the differences, they were focused on, you know, me metabolically characterizing specifically the tumor-initiating cells. So they did metabolomics and metabolite tracing analysis uh, on... Uh, so this is specifically a, a lung cancer, two lung cancer lines that had high tumor-initiating cell activity, okay? So granted, it's not everywhere. This is a lung cancer, you know, with my whole narrative of going top to bottom all over the body. Fine, you got me. But the, the cancer leaves the lung. Where do you think it goes? Everywhere, right? So shut up out there. My narrative is intact. Anyway, they have done these analyses and revealed that the tumor-initiating cells have highly elevated methionine cycle activity, okay, and transmethylation rates that are driven by this gene called MAT2A, all right? And so this is really critical. They have super high methionine cycle activity, and this causes the, them to consume methionine, like, super fast. The consumption far outstrips the regeneration, so it leads to this, quote, addiction to exogenous methionine. They're dependent on getting methionine from an outside source. All right, so here's an obvious Achilles heel for these tumor-initiating cells is they're cracked out on the methionine. So if you could pharmacologically inhibit it, boom, and that's what they did. They, they inhibit the methionine cycle pharmacologically and show that even transient inhibition cripples the tumor-initiating capability of those cells. All right, so this seems like a, a really um, viable approach to at least thinning out. You know, you could add this with a, a more mainline chemo. It gets rid of all the other guys, suppress the, t the tumor-initiating cells from seeding new, new cancers or growing like wild. Uh, so, I mean, this is a big story at the Biopolis. Good for them. This is not just the lung. Also, I said... To, to the point of my narrative, these, this is a generic process with cancer. They, they show that also the methionine cycloenzymes, they're also enriched in other tumor cell types. So this is providing insights not just into this lung carcinoma, but it could be generally applied and, you know, maybe exploited as a metabolic vulnerability to all cancers. And we can get that survival percentage up to 100 I won't be surprised it's come out of Singapore. Uh, and that does it for the roundup. You know, we're going to get close to this interview very shortly. But before we do that, I want to say a little something here to all you guys who are interested in learning more about differentiating pluripotent stem cells into pancreatic progenitors. I got something to say to you. You could supplement, not just, you know, the entertainment. You're getting entertained right now. I know. You're getting some knowledge. Supplement it. All right, go hear doctors Ray Dunn and Jamie Trott discuss the differentiation of pluripotent stem cells to insulin-producing islet-like cells in their webinar. It's called Understanding Pancreatic Development in Diabetes Using Patient-Specific IPS Cells. During this webinar, they describe generating pancreatic progenitor cells from pluripotent stem cells, differentiating these cells into the endocrine lineage, and how these systems can be used to better understand pancreatic development and diabetes. Watch this webinar, the whole thing, at www.stemcell.com slash done webinar. 
All right. That's stemcell.com slash D-U-N-N webinar. All right, guys. Today we're here with Dr. Adrian Tio, who's principal investigator at the Institute of Molecular and Cell Biology at ASTAR. That's at the Biopolis in Singapore. Dr. Tio's research focuses on using stem cell technology to model human pancreas development in vivo and to study the mechanisms that cause diabetes and underlie diabetic complications. Dr. Tio, thank you so much for being on the show today. Welcome. Thank you for hosting, Dalen. Well, of course, that's my job. And, uh, you know, we would like to start with just a brief introduction to your research focus in the lab. Can you help us with that? Sure. So my name's Adrian. And so I lead the Adrian Teal Laboratory, or the AT Lab, um, also known as the Stem Cells and Diabetes Laboratory, out of Institute of Molecular and Cell Biology, in short we call IMCB, at the Agency for Science, Technology and Research, which we call ASTAR in Singapore. So in, in ASTAR, our focus is on building scientific knowledge and translating research discoveries to benefit the economy and society. For my research program, we are broadly leveraging on human pluripotent stem cells, which you know you can be human embryonic stem cells, can be human-induced pluripotent stem cells, and then differentiating them into pancreatic cells or cell types affected in diabetic complications to understand the disease pathology and complications. There are broadly three main thrusts of our laboratory. One is to use these human pluripotent stem cells to model and study human pancreas development in vitro. So we differentiate these human pluripotent stem cells to pancreatic cells following development and try to understand how this development occurs, ultimately forming mature beta cells. Through this process, we want to understand the critical steps, pathways, and mechanisms that guide human beta cell development and maturation. The second thrust is to use these human pluripotent stem cells to study mechanisms by which genes and gene variants cause diabetes. Uh, to start, we are making human-induced pluripotent stem cells or human iPS cells from patients whom we call maturity onset diabetes of the young or MOLI in short. This is a monogenic form of diabetes. We differentiate these iPS cells to study human beta cell development, maturation, and function. Beyond the monogenic diabetes, we are of course interested in the more prevalent diabetes like type 2 diabetes. So we work with clinicians who have assessed to these unique patients with specific risk alleles that can potentially confer diabetes and um, its complications. So with these unique cohorts of type 2 diabetes individuals with risk variants, we also differentiate them to pancreatic cells to look at the disease mechanism. So last but not least, a thrust that we want to go ahead in the near future is to look at mechanisms underlying diabetic complications. So this is more difficult, but what we are trying to do is to get cohorts of patients with diabetes, but with and without complications, such as diabetic nephropathy, which is a kidney disease, differentiate them into kidney cells, and then try to help us understand why is it that some people uh, with diabetes don't have kidney problems, whereas some others develop uh, kidney disease. Hmm. Wow. So you got, I mean, you're running on all cylinders there, uh, which brings us to, I mean, the basic question here, just looking into the population in Singapore, unlike most of the West where, you know, obesity and diabetes and heart disease is, I mean, maybe it's on the rise in Singapore, but it's already at a very, I, I would call stratospheric level 
in uh, Western society, particularly the United States, um, where I read that obesity is reported below 10% in Singapore. I would imagine that, of course, there is um, diabetes and complications thereof are, are still prevalent. But uh, could you give us an idea of like what, what's the scope of the disease uh, in, in uh, Singapore? Sure. So you've touched on a very important point, which is obesity and then diabetes. So according to the National Health Surveys, the diabetes rates in Singapore are actually more than 11%. If you know the data from the International Diabetes Federation, the world average of diabetes is only about 8.8 or 9%. It is a major concern, and therefore the government of Singapore declared a war on diabetes for the first time a couple of years ago to mobilize the whole of society efforts against this chronic disease. Now, I train at Boston at Jocelyn Diabetes Center, and I was in the U.S. for about three years, and very aware of what you're talking about in terms of the high rates of obesity in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, the, the obesity rates in Singapore are about 10%. Uh, they're not as high, but you can appreciate that diabetes rates are a lot higher. So this is one area of our research that we're interested to understand. But of course, I need to mention that obesity rates are also increasing in Singapore, but we're just not at that 30% level that you have in America. Hmm. And I mean, I should clarify that what we're talking about with cell-based therapy and diabetes is mostly type 1 diabetes. You know, the diabetes that affects your childhood, autoimmune, whatever the mechanism underlying it, whereas obesity in the Western disease that I'm talking about is, uh, you know, more type 2 that, that adult onset are acquired. And I know you talked actually about the mechanistic cause of diabetes in that context of like the monogenic heritable, but you also talked about how you're, you're looking at the complications and um, perhaps also looking to explore how type 2 diabetes can be um, investigated using pluripotent cells. Can you tell us about that in light of the fact that, you know, we're talking about obesity and type 2 being a major issue in the West and perhaps becoming a major issue as we export our culture worldwide, globally. Um, what do you do? How do you address type 2 diabetes using uh, right. your, your program? So those are, those are important and good questions. Um, let me go back to a little bit about diabetes, diabetes rates in Singapore. So according to the statistics, we have the second highest proportion of diabetics among the developed countries. And where we are in Asia, we have in Singapore about 70% of Chinese individuals, maybe about 20% of Malays, and maybe about 10% of Indians. If you walk around Singapore, you will see that people are generally lean. Right, not um, it's a little different from when you walk around in in America. For example, we have um, people who are a little bigger in size. So we think at the moment that in Asia the diabetes are more uh, of the lean phenotype of diabetes. Not to say that obesity doesn't play a role, but um, we're working with some clinicians, and their preliminary data seem to suggest that pancreatic beta cell dysfunction plays quite a big role in diabetes in Asia. So when we have access to the different ethnicities, and that's a strength of us in Singapore, we can work with clinicians who have access to patients with Chinese, Malays, and Indians, um, do use the IPS modeling to study the beta cell dysfunction, and probably compare that with a Caucasian uh, pluripotent stem cell line, for example. So because of this, that the diabetes rates are high, we have the lean phenotype of diabetes, obesity rates are a little lower. Uh, we think that there's quite a bit of contribution from the pancreatic beta cell point of view. 
Another point I'd like to mention is we work a lot with diabetes clinicians who look at the diabetes genetics of Asia. And so um, as we interact and look at the literature in terms of genes that are tightly associated with type 2 diabetes, actually many of the genes you realize reside in gene loci, be it the enhancer regions or the coding regions of pancreatic genes. So there is some amount of contribution in terms of genes that have gone wrong in the pancreas, therefore contributing to uh, diabetes. So for type 2 diabetes, we are currently looking at some gene variants that are unique to East Asians. So we have recruited in collaboration with our clinician collaborators, um, individuals who are genotyped, wild type, or having a specific gene variant. Uh, these genes are unique because they are coding variants in pancreatic genes. We make them into induced chloroquine stem cells, differentiate into pancreatic cells, and look at how this variant in this pancreatic gene actually affects pancreas differentiation and development. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you're talking about this, uh, using this whole patient-driven model, this uh, induced pluripotent stem cell model. It's notable, I think, in Singapore specifically because famously Singapore has tremendous diversity in their population also amongst the scientific community. How, how does that play with the your work, given the, the broad swath of, of people, types, ethnicities that you have to draw from there, does that make it uh, more difficult or less or more powerful, let's say, in terms right. of uh, the suite of, of material genetic background that you have to work from? I think there are, of course, unique challenges because of cultural differences, uh, but it does give us some amount of strength because we are in Singapore, I'm this region called Southeast Asia, embedded at the south of you know China and on the right of India, for example. And then in our region, we have a lot of our neighbors who are uh, indigenous Malays. So in Singapore, we naturally have um, Asians of these particular different regions coming together. And that gives us uh, tools, access to human material that actually reflects differences in, in biology of the diabetes, which is very interesting. So for some races, sometimes it's a bit harder to recruit, partly because of lower cell, uh, lower numbers of individuals who are willing to come up to donate their material. In other instances, it also means that you now have to work with three population cohorts instead of just one um, more common cohort. And so we do need to consider factors like controlling for the controls. And sometimes gene variants occur in one ethnicity but not the other. So it gives us an opportunity to have some comparisons between the Chinese against the Malays or the Indians, for example. I think it's challenging but also very exciting for us because it gives us a lot of opportunity to look at how different ethnicities can actually affect the trajectory of developing diabetes. Right, and the, and the other side of that is, is in your peers, uh, Singapore, I mean, in terms of the list of mosts, I'll go through briefly, and this isn't comprehensive, but it's been named as the most technology-ready, best investment potential, world's smartest, world's safest, world's most competitive city. I don't know if that's a plus or minus, but there's a lot of other world's <laughs> most and best and all that. How is that kind of cultural identity in Singapore? Because I think it's really manifest at the highest level. It's kind of mandated. Singapore, we are, you know, moving forward. It's very, I think, you know, creating this identity of of excellence and the best. How is that? How is that reflected in in the science uh, in community? Right. 
thank you very much for the compliment <laughs> to Singapore. I'm very happy to be in Singapore and I'm proud about it. So, you know, I'm based at the Institute of Molecular Cell Biology, IMCB ASTAR. So ASTAR is a public sector agency in Singapore that drives mission-oriented research to further Singapore's economic growth and improve lives. So IMCB was one, is one of the oldest uh, research institutes in ASTAR. It's a premier research institute, and the quality of the work within IMCB, its output speaks for itself because we have more than 35 years of history and really reflects the science that we do. Now, this thing about Singapore, we are a small country, um, a total of about six plus million people, of which about 3.5 million are Singaporeans. The Singapore government is always very strategic about doing things because we are a very small country, our population is very low, and we really need to rely on a lot of talent. We don't have natural resources. You know, people are what we have, and the numbers are very small. So the Singapore government has early on earmarked research and development, R&D, as an important pillar of economy with strategic long-term investments in research, innovation, and enterprise that we affectionately call RIE. So with governmental commitment, we always try to get the best people together so that in a small area, we have very good people working so there's good research together. So within ASTAR, where I am at the Biopolis, there is a strategic focus in getting the best talent from overseas. We also try to get the best talent in Singapore, groom them, have a very healthy mix of foreigners and locals, about 50-50, so that there's a good interaction. We learn different cultures. Uh, we learn to learn, uh, learn from each other, bounce off ideas, so that we remain competitive in our overall scientific endeavors. Mm, and so, I mean, there's a lot there uh, that we can unpack, but I think you have a unique insight because you've worked at the, you know, at the highest level labs in the United States and the UK, and now you're based in Singapore. Um, on multiple fronts, let's start with just like in terms of the atmosphere and, and the collegial or not, you know, competitive or not in those uh, research bases, how, how do they compare? Right. So thank you for talking about this. Um, so I did my PhD in United Kingdom uh, at Cambridge with Ludovic Vallier at the Edinburgh's Hospital. So um, I learned a lot in my PhD. Cambridge is known to have be renowned in development biology, stem cell research. I interacted with a lot of renowned professors who have really shaped our knowledge about developmental biology and stem cell biology. Now, uniquely, I was trained at the Adam Brooks Hospital, and so I learned the need for basic scientists to interact very closely with clinicians. And in fact, when I was doing my PhD, I had colleagues and friends who were consultants who were doing an MD-PhD. That really helped shape my early phase of um, scientific training, where we want to learn about stem cells, differentiation. We also want to work with clinicians and try to understand more about human disease biology and how to translate our findings. So that pretty much summarizes my early training on stem cell biology. And thereafter, I knew I, I wanted to train on diabetes. I went to Jocelyn Diabetes Center at the Longwood Medical Area, Harvard Medical School, where I really learned a lot about um, diabetes. So uh, and all the, many of the PIs were actually medical doctors, MD, PhDs, always actively engaged in different kinds of diabetes research, um, can be clinical, epidemiology, a lot on adiposity because of the obesity rates in America, and of course, affectionately for me, it would be beta cell biology. So in a very healthy ecosystem at Jocelyn, Longwood Medical Area, where there was a lot of opportunity to interact with other clinicians, scientists, 
Um, I learned how to interact with clinicians, uh, network, and so on. So now back in Singapore, I always think back about my training in the UK and in the US. And I think one advantage would always be the fact that I connect, I learned to connect with clinicians. So in Singapore, I'm working on diabetes. So now I collaborate extensively with diabetes clinicians across different hospital groups in Singapore. I also start to work with some pancreatic surgeons and even bariatric surgeons because we're looking at metabolism and that, how that affects pancreatic bio, uh, beta cell biology. So in Singapore, there is increased um, demand for clinician scientists. So I try to work with a lot of clinicians, also the young clinicians who are looking to do their PhD. And that really builds a very nice um, uh, interaction, collaboration for both myself as a scientist and also as the clinician who wants to go into research and help move clinical research forward. Um, in ASTA, I want to mention that we have strengths in developing this public-private partnerships between academia, clinicians, and the private sector. So we work with hospital groups, both the clinicians I talked about, and in fact, because we are mission-oriented forward uh, towards the economy, economic outcomes, um, we are actively working, engaging companies who are interested in diabetes, diabetes genetics, unique cohorts that we have in Asia, so that collectively as a whole, we present a package that will be um, fruitful in helping us understand human diabetes and trying to um, translate our research. Okay, so um, I, I, we've covered Singapore, I think, pretty, uh, we're pretty solid on that. Now I want to talk about your science. There's one of your, I think it was a review article or, or one of them, a minor thing you wrote, but the title is what I loved. It was an arduous journey from human pluripotent stem cells to functional pancreatic beta cells. I thought it was an apt title for you. Because in your training, you know, and, and similar to myself, I think that, that uh, you, my assessment would be that you, you train and your early work was focused on kind of the, the pluripotent stem cells themselves, what governed pluripotency, what governed exit into the primary germ layer and specifically endoderm, of course, um, apropos to your, your chosen field here uh, with the beta cell. But uh, then, yeah, moving into actually getting these cells to, to form tissues and, and functional cells that have a therapeutic benefit. Uh, so, and I think that's a, that's a good metaphor for the whole field. You know, we're just trying to figure out what these cells were, and then we're trying to figure out how we can make them work, and now we're trying to use them and trying to get some clinical benefit. What would you say is, uh, how far along that arc would you say we, we've come in any kind of um, any observations you have about that progress? So um, as you mentioned, um, my lab is interested in differentiating human pluripotent stem cells to pancreatic beta cells. So there are a lot of, in this field, it, it is a work of many, many people, and I'm just one out of many of them. Um, I was fortunate to join Dr. Alan Coleman and Dr. Radon in 2007 at this company called ESL International, where there was no human IPS yet. We were only working with human embryonic stem cells in the early days of ESL field where they were trying to differentiate these human ESLs to pancreatic cells. It was very, very difficult. People only could make PDX1 positive pancreatic progenitors. They tried all sorts of things, and that was really difficult to get one or 2% of insulin positive cells. And then along the way, of course, there were many renowned scientists who poured in efforts. 
And of course, of note, there were some big companies, including that of Novacell previously and now Viasite, where they were one of the forefronters in terms of pushing the field forward, um, actively trying to um, modify the protocol, help us make definitive anadem with high efficiency, and then make pancreatic anadem with high efficiency. And ultimately, at the moment, many of you will be aware that they're performing clinical trials in California, um, transplanting human ES-derived pancreatic progenitors into type 1 diabetic individuals in the hope that they will mature and then treat these type 1 diabetic individuals. So besides that, of course, there were a lot of scientific activity in differentiating these cells stepwise towards definitive anadem, pancreatic progenitors, endocrine progenitors, insulin-positive immature beta cells. And now we are really at the last step of trying to get these insulin-positive cells being functional all the time, which is to say that these insulin-positive cells, when you starve them and then give them a bout of glucose, they can actually respond and secrete insulin. And that's really the ultimate goal. So this field from the, you know, the early 2000s and now about 2019, it's about 15, 10, 15, or nearly 20 years. And that's summarized in my review article um, led by my first PhD student. It, it pretty much summarizes what things people have tried, what was tweaked along the way in the protocol. And now, now everyone is doing suspension cultures. Uh, some would like to call it an organoid culture. And so we get good percentages of insulin-positive cells, but unfortunately, the functionality is still something that everyone wants to work on. Um, and so that is the situation so far. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, what, what you're, you're talking about here is that, yeah, we've, we've kind of that arduous journey, right? We've figured out the protocols, we've optimized at each stage, and, and the, the beta cell is actually a great example because there's so many tiers of specification to get towards that functional mature cell. And you, again, I think more recently, has shown that it's even more complicated that based on whether, you know, in vivo or ex vivo, using this paper, uh, this approach with single cell seek that you just published recently. Will you tell us about that story? Sure. So, um, as you and everyone listening in here will be aware that single cell RNA seq is very commonplace at the moment. Now, I started my laboratory in 2014 at the IMCB A-Star Biopolis. Um, there was the early days where there were only two or three single-cell RNA-seq papers in the, in the very well-known literature. Um, working on pancreatic beta cells, we need to get access to, very difficult to assess human islets or human beta cells in Singapore because we are in the Far East, where, whereas most of these human islet active um, isolations are always in the... America, Canada, and some places in Europe. We are, we are writing a review article on this at the moment. So I was fortunate to be able to get access to some human islets from Edmonton, uh, University of Alberta, who were the pioneers in the Edmonton Protocol. And so we got some batches in. Um, by the time they reached us, they, they were all usually about four to seven days out of a human donor. So I worked actively with a bioengineer here in Singapore, who that time was working with the um, single cell chips. And so what we did was to do a single cell qPCR in the early days. We did single cell reverse transcription and then targeted qPCR analysis. And interestingly, we saw that once the human islets are outside the body for a couple of days, because of the situation that we are in Singapore, that we take four to seven days to receive these cells, actually these human islet cells 
start to actually decrease lower express lower levels of pancreatic genes and in fact express higher levels of the immature um, pancreatic signatures. So that's why we, we, we say that there was some form of de-differentiation signatures in these human islets when you leave them outside the body for a couple of days. And so if we want to use this knowledge and harness um, the potency of donor islets, we know know that we need to use them early on, that if it's out of the body for a, a good few days, then you start to lose um, the signature of the beta cell and they might not be as functional as, as what you have liked them to be. So that is the early part of the work. And right now, um, single-cell RNA is in vogue. Everyone is doing that. But I guess the next thing that people want to do is to combine just this single-cell transcriptomics with functional data. So one would need to identify every individual beta cell, understand its transcription, and then it with its real function, whether every individual beta cell can respond to glucose or not. And that becomes a true test. So that's how I, I, I see the field moving forward in terms of uh, beta cell heterogeneity and single cell transcriptomics analysis. And are you saying that you think we need to reach a level of, of uniform functionality across all cells in order to have a transplantable product from IPS or any, you know, embryonic stem cell? Right. So uh, in the past few years, there were some reports that um, there are some what we call the beta cell hub cells. So there is this uh, idea that in an islet, for example, there are some hubs that first respond to glucose and then they trigger the uh, peripheral cells to respond similarly. I don't have the perfect answer. Um, what everyone is trying to do is to make higher percentages of insulin positive cells. The first challenge is let's just get more of them functional very routinely in vitro cultures. Once we cross that hurdle, then we can worry about whether every cell needs to be uh, functional or will it be that only 50% are functional and that is sufficient to regulate your blood glucose levels. Mm -hmm. And the, I guess the, the other idea though there is that the, when you take them out of the body, they kind of revert to this immature signature. Is the reverse true? Like when you take a IPS derived, maybe immature, does it does it mature when you put it in vivo, or is there an issue of like expand, expanding uh, progenitors in vitro, estra? How does this impact the IPS derived beta cell? The idea that you get dedifferentiation of a of the bona fide islet ex vivo. What does that say about the 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 IPS system. Uh, so as far as I'm aware, um, many of us, uh, many of the researchers working on this area, um, they differentiate the human pluripotent stem cells towards insulin positive cells. And thereafter, we need to demonstrate its functionality. So what most of us do is to transplant into the rodent. Uh, it can be subcutaneous, it can be uh, under the kidney capsule, and leave it to incubate for a couple of months, sometimes three months, even up to six months. And thereafter, you take it out of the kidney transplant and then you do your functional challenge. So all of us know pretty well that if you do that, in vivo maturation are more likely than not, your human pluripotent stem cells, um, derived beta cells will actually be functional. 
I'm not aware at the moment whether anybody has shown that these functional cells can then actually de-differentiate again. So that's something that maybe someone will begin to look at to kind of trigger the feel a little bit so indeed we can make um, human pancreatic beta-like cells that are responsive, but actually if you took them out again, maybe they'll be de-differentiating. So that part I'm not so sure. Um, maybe someone is could be working on this. Hmm. How about, um, would you say, I mean, just let's get out there. What, what do you think, it, how close are we to a solution here for type 1 at least or transplantable beta cells? And what's the biggest uh, obstacle that needs to fall to get there? The field has really progressed a long way. Very amazing work by many of the renowned scientists. A lot of progress has been made. Now, these cells are very difficult to make and now we can routinely make at least 20 to 40% of insulin-positive beta-like cells after differentiation. So um, the companies have shown that if you put these in vivo, they can mature. For type 1 diabetes, besides maturing these stem cell-derived beta cells, there are some people, the bioengineers, who are working on encapsulation devices so that these beta cells, when you transplant in a human, they don't get um, attacked by the immune cells, there's some form of protection. If anything goes wrong with what you transplant, you can actually take them out um, because you encapsulate them, you put them in a device so that it becomes safe for the human. Diabetes, these are two different, two different angles that people want to tackle. One is the functionality of the cell and two is the immune modulation that they don't trigger immune response and then the immune cells also don't continue to kill them. Mm, so I think I guess what I'm hearing is we're there, pretty, we're very close with the cells. We've got high efficiency, and and we're halfway there with the device and delivery in a way that you know fits into the the classic kind of drug delivery paradigm, but for cells. So I got, I mean it's, it sounds like we're very very close. I don't want to pin you to like a five to ten years type thing, but I would ask you this: Do you think that because this therapy has come so far along? Are, there's all these parallel approaches that have come so far along. And because the, the clinical unmet need is so great, would you venture that, that the beta cell will be the first uh, IPS or ES-derived uh, cell that gets into humans? Right. So in terms of the clinical utility of ES cells or human IPS cells, um, there are some clinical trials that are ongoing. For human ES cell-derived pancreatic cells, the clinical trial has been going on in California and then in Edmonton and then now moving on to Europe. So that is ongoing. Um, we know that there are people who are making retinal pigmented epithelial cells, um, trying to show that you can restore blindness in people. And that um, probably it's, it's uh, happening in Europe. And then we know in Japan, they reported uh, trials with human IPS cell-derived uh, RPEs. So um, they stopped it for a while. I think they are restarting. So there are these little things that are ongoing across the landscape in the world. What we hope is that um, the beta, cell, um, beta cells made from these human fluid stem cells can indeed function and can really help to 
treat or cure the type 1 individuals because they will really be phenomenal for the diabetes field and of course for the whole uh, stem cell and regenerative medicine field. Yeah, right. It's not a race, right? I mean, who cares who's no. first? And <laughs> and it's the good news is, as you just set, stated so clearly, is that there's these very promising trials, I think, that are already in play and uh, are, are moving at, I think, a, a careful, a steady and, and ambitious, but I think a careful pace, which I think is the most important thing that we don't blow up the field by having some unfortunate outcomes like we have seen in the past with other therapies. All right, Dr. Tio, this is really illuminating. If you don't mind, we're going to go into a little bit, a couple of uh, kind of science-related questions, but more about you and your lab, if you're ready. Sure. So the first one is, that we selected for you, is, uh, you know, a nod to those who came before you. Who are your scientific heroes? So scientific heroes. I definitely must mention my former mentors. Um, they were really instrumental in leading me to assist this scientific journey. First, Dr. Radan at the Institute of Medical Biology. He taught me a lot about scientific writing, presentation, literature. He was really a walking science library, teaching me a lot to dig deep into literature. And then Dr. Ludwig Vallier in Cambridge, he really taught me how to do the experiments, push the frontiers of getting work done, getting into publishing. And then Dr. Rohit Kukarni at Jocelyn, my postdoctoral mentor, giving me lots of opportunities to lead the research, now the right grant to interact with many renowned diabetes um, researchers. And now in Singapore, I also have a mentor. He's a clinician scientist, uh, Prof. Tai Yishong at the National University of Singapore. He, he's a diabetes clinician. He does diabetes genetics in East Asians. We collaborate a lot, we talk to each other a lot, and he helps me connect with companies who are interested to work with the Asian cohorts. And then through us, with the stem cell and beta cell biology, we kind of come together uh, as a collaborative unit. And I think I'm really thankful for all these scientific heroes who really helped me a great, great way along my career. Well, it's a great gift to live amongst your heroes and to have been influenced uh, so heavily by them. So, you know. Congratulations. You're a lucky guy. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and finally, we're going to just run through a few fill-in-the-blanks, uh, so a series of four. The first one being, the biggest thing in stem cell field right now is? I think it's working towards clinical trials for regenerative medicine. The stem cell field has been around for maybe 20-plus years since the discovery of human embryonic stem cells in 98, and then human iPS cell in 2006-2007. Uh, what the field really needs is not overpromise, do things very carefully, like you mentioned, but work carefully towards clinical trials to show that the utility of stem cells can be huge, that we can really push the frontiers and help in regenerative medicine. Yeah, we're at a watershed. I, I was skeptical because you always are. Uh, when you know you're in something with so much promise, but so much potential to failure as well. In the beginning, when I started in stem cells, I thought it'd be a long, a lot longer before we saw clinical trials, uh, and and we're there now. So this is an exciting time, a watershed moment, and uh, you're right there. You're right there, Dr. Tio. Um, second question: I would never have gotten to this point in my career without. Without certainly my mentors, my fellow lab members who, who support you along the tough times, you know, without your fellow lab members and friends, 
you know, you, you, you basically can't move and can't progress so far. They always stimulate you, they give you challenges, they help you when you need experiment, mental help. Your stem cell culture, you really need to change media every day. So sometimes you need that little bit of a break. So I'm really thankful for my friends in Singapore and UK and Boston and even my laboratory at the moment. The humans, the humans that change your yes. media so you can take one weekend, for goodness sake, after 10 straight of feeding cells, take one weekend, for goodness sake. Uh, next, when it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. Right, so this, when it comes to our programming, <laughs> I'm pretty much useless. <laughs> so we know we're in an era where we do a lot of sequencing, RNA sequencing, attack seek, all sorts of sick, chip sick, and you really need to work very closely with the high throughput data. So unfortunately, I never really got very good at our programming. So I have to rely a lot of bioinformaticians' help. So I need to make good friends so that we can I can get the help together to analyze those data for me so that we can move the science forward. Well, you won't be surprised, I'm sure, to hear that you're not the first to claim R. <laughs> as their one useless field and come on I mean it's it's tough I mean it's a whole other thing and it's why these bioinformaticians are commanding six-figure salaries out there I would advise you if you're a PhD or if you're looking to get a PhD think about bioinformatics for job security for sure because uh, we they got a job for you in, in the TL lab for sure um, last but not least if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on the way out it is my so I'm going to say it's going to be my lab family photo. Oh. So I'm very fortunate to have a cell culture room uh, where we have five, six incubators, two tissue culture hoods. It's the busiest place in the laboratory. Everybody just fights for hood time. So what I did was to put a lab family photo on a wall. Every year I renew it two or three times when people come and go. I think it, it reminds everyone of the scientific family. We spend so much time at work. We want to be happy with what we are doing. We want to cherish the times we work together through the difficult times um, that we are growing together. It creates an important sense of belonging that I think everybody will cherish during difficult scientific journey. So I will, I will take that because hidden behind there are many of the old photos and we see year by year new people come and go. And that's really a very memorable journey that I want to take with me. Yes, the journey, arduous or pleasant, it's always a journey. And that's a great uh, symbol for the journey, I guess. The lab photo, which continues to evolve as your lab grows uh, and grows more connected. And as you start disseminating these young minds out into the world to uh, be on this show one day, hopefully. Um, Dr. Tio, it was such so. a, pleasant to, uh, a pleasant conversation. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. And uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you very much, Dylan. Thank you, and have a nice day, everybody. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of our show. Great chat with Adrian Tio out of the Biopolis. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com. This has been The Stem Cell Podcast. We will see you in a couple weeks.